We're measured to a great degree, unfortunately, in the West and now the East by how much money we make, how many possessions we have, maybe even what our IQ is, how many degrees we have. But there's very little official space for people who have wisdom. Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. Today's guest is Sanjay Rawal. Sanjay is a filmmaker and runner based in America. His movies alternate from deep dives into celebrated running races such as the 3100 and heartfelt, tender portraits of communities such as his most recent film, Gather, and its insight into Native Americans on their journey to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty. He is also a student and proponent of Sri Shimnoi's teachings, and his movie, 3100, is an insight into his celebrated race around a block in Queens that is the longest race in the world. Sri Chimnoy was a big believer in the spiritual aspect of running, founding his own marathon team in 1977. Through races and challenges, he truly explored the meaning of what it meant to run and become. In this conversation, we explore Sanjay's interpretation of that statement, what his spirituality has taught his running, the performance benefits of it, his work as a filmmaker, and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to welcome... Sanjay Ruwal. Sanjay, thank you so much for, for coming on The Big Run. Really excited to, to get stuck into this conversation. So much to talk about with, with yourself. I mean, I don't really know where to start, to be honest with you. You're, you're a runner, you're a filmmaker, but I feel like it's morning where you are. We're sort of later on in the day here in the UK, so I feel like you're you're awake, you're prepared. So I feel like let's let's dive into to the big one. Right, right from the start. I mean, for you, what does it mean to run and become? Well, it's it's a it's a privilege to be on your show, Danny, and to to get to to talk running. I'm I'm not an elite runner. I I can't say that I've got incredible genetic potential or any sort of of real kind of like role in the running world. Other than I'm I've I've been lucky to to be an observer in a couple of really niche sectors of the greater running family. Mm. But these particular sectors I feel have been undervalued and perhaps hold a lot of keys to not just running performance, but to the transformational aspects of running. Now we, we all know that, you know, running if running can do a lot of things for you. You know, if you if you want to have a better looking physique, running can help. If you want to have a healthy interior physique, running can help. If you want to de-stress, running can help. But what I've been able to learn from my, my background as a student of an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy and my own kind of explorations through film and writing with traditional running communities, indigenous running communities, is that if used properly, running can be completely transformational. Now, I know people will wonder what properly means, and there have been a number of, of us that have transformed our lives or outlooks through running, but dare I say, we may have done that accidentally. And I say that because I've spent time with North American indigenous people 
whose cultures were underpinned by running for, for millennia. With, with Kalahari Bushman in Botswana, again, who've been using running as a spiritual tool for hundreds of thousands of years. And I've kind of learned that just as there's a process to getting ready for a marathon across five or six or seven months, there's a process to trying to use running specifically as a tool to become a better person. And, and you know, I, I, I'm 48 years old. I've been running since I was 15. And I've only kind of come into this in the last five or six years. Mm. And it's opened up a completely different world and a, a completely different perspective for me. Wow. I mean, that's a, a really exciting proposition, the idea of using running to, to, to become a a better person. So you say that sort of that idea only sort of came into your sort of running sphere or your consciousness within the last couple of years. When did it first kind of come on your radar then, this idea of using running as a tool for sort of self-improvement as well as kind of physical improvement? My, my teacher, Sri Chinmoy, who who passed away in 2007, he, he was at the forefront of the running boom in the United States. He made his home in New York City, um, hailing from India. But from the mid-70s, he was intimately involved with people like Ted Corbett, Fred LeBeau, who were the pillars of the New York Roadrunners Club and the founders of the New York City Marathon. And people in the U.S. began gravitating to Sri Chinmoy for his unusual perspective on running as a pathway to the divine. Mm. From, early, from Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, all the way to recent runners like Paula Radcliffe, Paul Turgot. You know, Sri Chinmoy offered a, a, a really, really unique perspective. That said, you know, one of the things that Sri Chinmoy was best known for was really pushing the limits of distance. And in 1997, he founded a run called the Self-Transcendence 3100-Mile Run. I, in fact, made a movie about that run called 3100 Run and Become, which is on Amazon Prime pretty much globally. But in any case, that run, it, you know, takes place around a city block, about a kilometer long city block, about a half a mile away from where I lived. And it scared the living daylights out of me for the first two decades of its, of its existence. I mean, people run more than 60 miles a day, nearly 100 kilometers a day to try to finish the race within the 52-day window. And some people do more. And I wanted to make a film about how these runners not only tackled the mileage, but seemed to enjoy these that, that these grueling amounts of miles, much more than I could ever enjoy a five, six, seven, or eight, or nine, or 10 mile run. And my first kind of foray took me to the Navajo reservation in Arizona, where I went on a run with the Navajo ultra marathoner named Sean Martin. And we ran through the most beautiful canyon that I have ever seen or been in in my life. It was completely closed off to non-Navajo, but because I was with Sean, I kind of got to run with him through this canyon. And I was mystified. I was blown away. Like all my senses were on fire. And when we got back to Sean's house and I looked at him, even though he'd been running this particular route every single day for decades, I saw that he got much more out of the run than I did. And it struck me. And I, and I asked him, like, I said, Sean, why does it look like you've had a better run than me. I mean, this place was unbelievable. It was my first time there and I was blown away. And he said to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting him, he said, when Navajo run, they use their feet to pray to Mother Earth. They breathe in Father Sky. They're asking Mother Earth and Father Sky for their blessings and they're 
showing them that they're willing to work for those blessings. And when they make a connection to the creator, to the sky, to the earth, they not only become champions, they become warriors. And that's what I realized what I was missing all of these years, that running is about being in the exact moment that you're in. It's not about projecting ahead to times or to imagining finish lines. It's about literally being in your feet as they prayed to Mother Earth. It's literally being in your breath as you breathe in the entire sky. And that creates a connection that these traditional running communities have enjoyed and explored for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And that, to me, was the key to understanding the transformational aspect of running. It's fascinating. And I, I imagine that that process of understanding or, you know, developing that practice within your own running as well is something along with fitness in general, something that re- requires a deal of, of practice and, and cultivation. And as part of your work as a, as a documentary filmmaker and kind of in studying these groups and, you know, the, the 3100 movie in particular, as well as documenting it, was it also a tool for you to kind of cultivate your own practice in sort of getting to that state in terms of your own running, right? sort of removing yourself away from personal bests and times and getting more into being truly present with your own running? Did, did the two kind of go hand in hand? It's interesting because when I was in high school in, in California, I was a pretty good runner. I mean, California has 33 million people, or at least it, it did then, now it has more. And when I was under 18, I was one of the top five or six, you know, middle distance runners in the state. But everything was about competing against other people. Mm. And at the high school level, yeah, you could get joy out of being first, second, or third pretty much every race. But when I got to college, it was clear that it was going to be a long road to being able to be first, second, or third again. And it wasn't a road that gave me any joy. And so it was less about PRs than it was about winning. Mm. And, and it was really hard for me to shake that attitude. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that because I, I did join Sri Chinmoy Spiritual Path when I was 19. And he'd always advocated this idea of competing against yourself. And I, I, I ran and I jogged, but I, I never really understood what that meant. And now I'm realizing and again, I'm, 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 I'm stealing from a Hopi indigenous elder from the Hopi tribe named Rex Taliam Tewa. I had a, a, the privilege of, of running with a bunch of native youth through their land. And on a morning run, Rex said in Hopi, then translated to English, running is about finding joy in the exertion. Mm. And so you have to push yourself. You have to stretch your limits. You, you have to go into the depth of effort, but we tend to equate effort as pain because on the surface, effort, <laughs> effort is pain. Mm. But Rex was saying that, no, no, no. If you really go into those moments where you're making a concerted effort, you will find joy. And recently, I believe on, on Rangan Chatterjee's podcast with Elliot Kipchoge, Elliot Kipchoge was, Dr. Chatterjee asked Kipchoge why he smiled, particularly at the end of races. And Kipchoge, paraphrasing, said something like, you know, the end of those races, there's such a tremendous amount of pain and suffering that the body is experiencing. But at the same time, 
when he reaches that stage of pain, he knows that he is about to transcend his own capacities or might be transcending his own capacities. And he's at the edge of that performance envelope, something that he's trained for. And why not enjoy that rare moment of living exactly what you've trained for to do your absolute best. Mm. And so to answer your question kind of in a, in a topsy-turvy way, it is about PRs. It is about effort, but much more than competing against other people, it's about trying to really, really enjoy those moments where I'm able to put in everything I have not worrying about the result, not worrying about what the time is going to be necessarily, but knowing that I'm doing my absolute best in that moment. And if it results in a PR, fantastic. But doing my best doesn't necessarily have to equate to a, a, a place, a placing or a podium. It's interesting. Um, you, you mentioned the the, the Kipchoge kind of uh, quote that, yeah, people kind of He's becoming more and more kind of noted for his kind of the little slight wince, sort of half wince smile that he does. You know, he did it in the 159 and he's done it in many marathons that that people kind of really connect with. And I, I remember when I first encountered that, it was sort of a, it was like a really like a interesting kind of note of his character. But I never really thought about it on a sort of deeper level. But looking into you know, the work that you've done, your your film, the, the 3100 film, and looking into Shi Chimnoy's sort of work and practice... I feel like there's there's a potential maybe to sort of have your cake and eat it in the way that you kind of came back around to saying that it is about PRs because I'm interested in this idea of using that sort of um, transcendence kind of mindset in order to in- enable better performances. If you, if you kind of get my sort of drift here, I- I- is there a way to sort of marry the two or have you found that there is a way to sort of marry the two that through that kind of transcendence with that, you know, those kind of extraordinary events like the 3100 race that kind of PRs and personal bests do tend to also happen within that same field without you kind of consciously striving towards them, if you get my meaning. A thousand percent. I mean, mm. Sweet and Moy from the early 80s was talking about the imminence of somebody breaking the two-hour marathon barrier. <laughs> of course, it didn't, didn't happen, you know, unofficially until, you know, four or five years ago. But that said, he advocated for the development of people's spiritual muscles, mm. or not just developing the cardiovascular system or the mitochondrial system and in, in muscles, but you know, really developing faith. And Kipchoge talks about that too, about the, the strength of, of faith in general, the understanding that we are much greater than just our own body, mind, heart, and soul. And by exploring these ideas through contemplation, specifically through meditation, and and I dare I say, not just meditation to de-stress or to become more aware of our own um, good qualities and bad qualities, but meditation in the classic Eastern sense as a return to the divine. Mm. Uh, some cultures use the word supreme, divine to, to denote a higher being that is both masculine and feminine and neither with form, without form, not necessarily conscripted into the, the, the aspect of Judeo-Christian religion that tends to 
scare some people away from from the word God, but a, a much more all-encompassing term, um, which Sri Chinmoy referred to as the supreme. That specific part of our being, we, we don't pay much attention to in this day and age. I mean, we, we try to learn as much as we can. We try to take care of our, our, our bodies, our, our physical comfort and our physical need, but are we really, really taking care of the emotional parts of our being, the spiritual parts of our being? And when you start developing those, I mean, I'm 48. I'm, I'm hoping to actually run a lifetime PR at the Houston Half Marathon um, on January 15th. And I, you realize that we are children of the divine. And what that translates to performance-wise is that age doesn't become a limitation anymore. I mean, most of the kind of local races that I run in, in New York City, like in Queens, um, I win or I'm in the top three beating 16, 18, 20, 25, 30-year-old runners who are more talented than me, but I would have to say they're not as motivated as me. Mm. Um, and that motivation for me is coming from this idea of running as a way to get to know myself. When you get to know yourself, you actually enter into the the realm that Kipchoge is talking about when he says that no human being is limited. It's not just some sort of greeting card phraseology. It's something that you really discover when you quiet your mind through meditation and you begin to enter your spiritual heart. You begin to see that your capacities are realistically much larger than you could have ever imagined. And then the process of running is trying to harness those capacities and channel them into outer performance. I mean, to, to not to belabor this point, but you know, one of the, the greatest limitations while racing is anxiety. <laughs> and when you experience anxiety, even on a mild level, your heart rate increases. When your heart rate increases even one or two beats per minute, your performance will naturally be capped. If you can practice experiencing calm and peace and relaxation while you run, you can begin to push yourself to faster times at the same heart rate, for example. So mindset, understanding mindset, and more importantly, understanding how to control your mindset in moments of extreme stress, that doesn't come from a specific workout, 20 by 400 meters on a track. Mm. That comes from meditation. Again, yeah, another exciting proposition. And I mean, just, just listening to your description when you're talking about, you know, the anxiety as a, a stressor on the heart that we kind of don't account for in, in sort of efforts. You know, my, my recent marathon effort, I could definitely factor in anxiety as being something that definitely pushed the, the heart rate north of where I wanted it to be. But for people who are listening to this, who perhaps haven't practiced meditation before and want to cultivate this thing that you're talking about, I mean, where, where's the place to start? Would it be something that you would advise sitting separately from running or would you encourage people to practice it whilst they're moving? That's a great question. It, it, it's twofold. Like in my own experience, it's, it's really difficult to learn to meditate while you're running. Mm. It's 
it's much easier to learn to meditate and then learn how to bring in meditation to your running. And you have to be able to experience that silence in the easiest way to experience it. And that's by having a practice of sitting, you know, sitting early in the morning, focusing 15, 20 minutes on meditation. There's a, a million different techniques that can help a person learn how to meditate. Everybody meditates in a different way, but a lot of the techniques out there will help a person kind of discover the best way for them to quiet their mind and enter into their heart. And that's the other aspect, you know, to try to find ways to build the spiritual heart. And, and that comes through devotion. It, it doesn't come through just trying to quiet the mind or trying to focus on one particular thought or a visualization. It comes from turning the practice into a quest. And that, that, seem, that might seem broad, but the, the way to kind of develop that sort of practice is by reading spiritual books, mm. reading about people who've, who've really devoted their life to meditation and all of the inner experiences they have. You know, we can say experiences of angels, experiences of the divine, experiences of God, experiences of great masters like Jesus or Buddha or Sri Aurobindo. Um, there's a million different paths and a, a million different books about those paths, but by kind of deepening our understanding of where this inner quest can actually take you individually, that helps to deepen our faith in our practice, that it's going to take us to a particular goal of universal love or universal peace or whatever somebody is really seeking in their innermost recesses of their heart. Mm. And once you develop that sort of devotional aspect to life, bringing in that devotional emotion into running is an incredible secret to performance. You know, imagine running, feeling love for humanity. I mean, this all sounds hokey, but like, you know, if you've walked through a forest or you've seen a sunset and your heart has been kind of flooded with just good thoughts and good feelings and good vibes, as we say in this day and age, Imagine bringing that sort of feeling into the most exertion-filled moments of a race. Mm. It's like, that's inspiration. And that's energy that's far beyond mitochondria. It's far beyond you know, your nutritional macro balance. It's something that you can cultivate, develop, and really bring to the fore when you need it. And, and that doesn't come just spontaneously. That comes from having a separate practice where you try to develop these qualities within yourself. Mm. It's funny, you, 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 sort of, you use that term, it, it may sound a bit hokey, but I think some of that rhetoric you, you use in terms of like thinking of it as a, as a quest and something that you're devoted to, I think that terminology, every runner who hasn't maybe considered spirituality or meditation would absolutely use those words to describe their running as something that they are devoted to, that something is, is, a, that is a quest for them. And I feel like that leap to apply that kind of focus and dedication to, to spirituality wouldn't be maybe so much of a leap because I feel like it is already innate in people who dedicate themselves to running. And I feel like if more people kind of 
get switched on to the possibilities, then more people I feel would be would find that that switch kind of easier. And in, in terms of that switch, you know, you said earlier that you, you when you discovered when you first discovered Sir Shimnoi was was there a reason for that discovery? Did it come at a time in your life where you were where you were looking for for something else? Like was there a a fork in the road that made you kind of go onto that path? I I love the question. I I think most of us who kind of discover spirituality really do so in moments of extreme pain, whether mm. that's real emotional suffering or existential suffering. Mm. Now, I mean, I have to say, like, I, I, I had a great childhood. I, I, I can't say that I had any sort of, you know, like trauma, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But around 19 in college, I, I had an existential crisis where I started really beginning to feel the weight of the decades ahead of me mm. and a complete uncertainty if I would ever find happiness. And, you know, when you get into that sort of existential crisis mode, you become very receptive to solutions. You're looking for any solution, any answer to the burning life question, who am I? Mm. And that forced me really to go out of my comfort zone and to start trying to find people that could answer that question. You know, so I started going to different lectures, different spiritual groups. And when I came across Sri Chinmoy, not in person at, at first, but his students and, you know, his teachings, I, under, I, I kind of recognized that this was a person who had answered those questions in his own life. He did know who he was. He did know the purpose for life. And it was clear that he was serving in a role to help other people answer those questions. And it's like a professor. You know, if you really want to learn something, you go to school, find a professor that knows what you want to learn. And if you end up, I guess, in, in graduate school, which I never went to, but I, you know, you find a professor that can really help you across the years, achieve a specific intellectual result. And so the concept of following an inner teacher didn't feel foreign at all. Mm. And after I graduated from college in, when I was 20, 21 in California, I immediately moved to New York City where he lived, Queens, and told myself, told my parents, told all my friends that this was going to be my version of grad school, that this was a, 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 a school to develop, dare I say, wisdom, um, spiritual understanding. And I don't think I would be where I am right now, or dare I say, who I feel I am right now, if it weren't for him. Mm. What was their reaction when you told them, your sort of your friends and your family, that this was your, your grad school that you were going to commit yourself to? You know, it was very, very difficult for my loved ones to really have as much faith in this sort of decision as I did. Mm. Because, you know, we're, we're measured to a great degree, unfortunately, in the West and now the East by how much money we make, how many possessions we have, maybe even what our IQ is, how many degrees we have. But there's very little 
official space for people who have wisdom. Mm. Not that I have wisdom, but you know, like that's the path that I wanted to go on, and that's the path that I I I wanted to be on. And traditional human societies, really, up until the Industrial Revolution, and one might argue, you know, maybe even earlier, um, there was a great value placed on people who would achieve wisdom. And those people were, were recognized and they were given space to practice. And they were also effectively beacons of advice, beacons mm-hmm. of light for everybody at every level of society. Um, some communities call those people gurus or teachers or even just elders. And it took a while for my parents, for example, who I love dearly, to really see that I, I was happy. And after a few years, they could see a, a change in my outlook, a change in my demeanor, a change in my enthusiasm, in my joy, and what I was able to offer to other people just from being a happier person. And, you know, they've, they've been completely supportive ever since. Mm. It's interesting, that point of the sort of looking back how people who sought wisdom and enlightenment were kind of heralded and, and held in, in high esteem. And we've perhaps slightly lost that, that sort of perspective on them. Do, do you feel like, cause I feel like this, this idea of, of, of spirituality and med- meditation, it feels like it's permeating more into the kind of common culture and you, you see it across different kind of mediums, you know, a, a district vision doing the Noi kind of clothing line to sort of connect it into, to, to the running kind of apparel world as an example but do you feel like it's permeating more and more that because of the kind of times we're living in, and I know that's a very kind of general term to kind of assess the kind of geopolitical climate that we're living in, but because of the way that things are sort of progressing for us as society, do you think there will be a sort of resurgence in people kind of putting people who are seeking wisdom and enlightenment back on a kind of higher pedestal to where they have been previously? You know, I, I loved and I learned from your comment earlier about how the running community is perhaps more receptive and already a, a better practitioner of the concept of devotion. Mm. I frankly don't see the devotional capacity being built in regular mainstream society, mm. but I do see it in running, mm. you know, like the, the, the kind of epitome of devotion is prayer. And, and I say that because it's like, when you pray, you're kind of forced to, to accept that your power alone can't help you achieve what you want, right? Like you're asking some either tangible or completely intangible, some known or some completely fantastical entity for some really concrete help. And a lot of the kind of spirituality that I believe is, you know, creeping into modern consciousness is more concentrated around self-empowerment. Like I am the guru Mm. by setting my intention, I can get what I want. And what you want might not always be the best for you. That's a problem. Mm. But in running, it's like even the most, agnostic or atheistic runner at some stage in some workout, even if they will never admit it, I 
guarantee you is going like, oh God, please let me, you know, finish this workout. <laughs> oh God, I hurt so bad. And it's a prayer. Like they're not saying God, mm. you know, randomly, because they could just be saying like, oh, Kim Kardashian, I'm hurting so bad. But they're not. <laughs> they're not. So it's like in this idea of like trying to push your limits, you invariably get to a stage where you realize that you yourself don't have the capacity to get to where your heart is telling you to go. And you invariably try to seek the help of a higher or greater power. And in many cases, at least in the moment when it happens, we tend to forget really quickly. In the moment that it happens, we feel a sense of gratitude Mm. as if we've gotten helped from a higher being or in recognition of the help that we've gotten from a deeper, more permeating energy. And you're right. It's like the running community and district vision is a great example where they're trying to marry devotion and performance. Mm. And I, I do think that's the future of running performance. I mean, we don't study it in Kipchoge because it's kind of frightening because so many of us are so far removed, not just from his physical performance realities, but from his kind of inner belief mm. reality. But if we really wanted to study his excellence, it's not just studying the level of his pronation. It's not just studying the, the level of his core workouts. It's studying how he has developed the faith that he's developed mm. and at least copying it like we copy everything else. <laughs> so true. It's so true. And I, I imagine many runner who's been listening to this sort of discourse so far, who was maybe slightly reluctant to consider themselves as sort of spiritual individuals or people who've perhaps considered that sort of call to prayer instantly chimed with your recreation of the kind of, oh God, let me finish this workout. And the penny dropped and realized, oh yes, no, I have. I have many a time made that sort of uh, maybe in a monologue during a particularly grueling workout or or long run. But just to your point with with Kipchoge and, and the the studying aspect of, of that kind of element of his uh, craft or, or practice, if you want to think of it in those kind of terms, what would what would happen potentially though, if there was, say a study was commissioned, X amount of money was plied in to sort of dig deeper into the kind of performance benefits of having a sort of spiritual practice or a meditation component where kind of raw data could be extrapolated where you could kind of quantify what those benefits were. Could you see a world where it would lead to sort of meditation being part of an Olympic teams practice, for example, like Team USA or Team GB for the for the UK listeners having a sort of uh, a, a meditation practitioner who came out with them to to an Olympic kind of meet in order to enable their team to perform at their sort of best if if the sort of if the study was commissioned and, and the money was plowed into it. I mean, I like I think this goes back to an earlier point where like you know running can mean a lot of things. It can mean trying to run 400 meters all out, or it could mean like jogging five minutes a day. And meditation has that same spectrum. You know, again, there's, there's meditation that's done for mental health, which is fine. I mean, there's, there's meditation done 
to relieve anxiety, which is fine. But like meditation has classically been used to realize that we are the divine. We are the supreme. And analogously, when we look for performance edge, we're not necessarily creating the science and then trying to apply it. We're looking at people like Kipchoge, like Michael Phelps, who have gone far beyond the realm of possibilities in performance. And we realize with the sample size of one, there's no real science around it. We might as well just copy them. And that maybe by copy the, copying them, we'll be able to create a broad-based hypothesis or a theory to apply to a larger subset of the population. So it's like everybody's looking at Kipchoge for alpha, for edge, you know, whether it's his, you know, his, his abdominal core work, whether it's his preseason routine, looking at his rest cycles, looking at the types of track workouts he does, looking at the focus on on teammates, but how many people are writing about the fact that like every Sunday he goes to church and, you know, what is his daily spiritual practice? Like we get little, little hints about the books that he's reading, but like, what does he actually do on a day-to-day basis to cultivate his faith? And just like everything else, chances are, it's not going to be very revolutionary. Mm. You know, it's like, we know he runs a lot of miles. He runs a lot of miles slow and a few miles fast. Are we going to be astounded by the, by the possibility that he prays for half an hour a day? Now, I don't know if that's true, but like, what if he said that? Would people just go like, oh, that's not sexy. That's mm. not interesting. But again, as we know with running, it's not the sexy stuff. It's not the interesting stuff that creates huge gains. It's the consistency of doing very basic things over and over and mm-hmm. over. And so rather than looking at, at, at necessarily the science and, and the large sample size one might need to cultivate a theory like this, it's more like, how do we run as fast as these guys? Let's just, and girls. I mean, the women's marathoning side is probably more exciting than the men's mm-hmm. marathoning side right now. Like, what are they doing, not just nutritionally, not just physically, but can we get hints from their spiritual outlook to life? Mm, so true. And also, I suppose as well, it's interesting just just in hearing your kind of response to that question, it's also quite telling in the sort of the the kind of further inquiry that I need to do as an individual in terms of my own connection to sort of spirituality and meditation and stuff that I kind of instinctively reach to what's the performance element? How can we extrapolate this and sort of look at it at a wide sort of sample size and how would the US team use it and stuff like that? Like it's quite interesting to to my own kind of sort of spiritual development that perhaps I need to sort of dig deeper into my own kind of connection with it as well. It's always quite interesting when you sort of have this this kind of discourse around this subject, what it kind of reveals and sort of throws up about about yourself. And I imagine with you, like as a, as a filmmaker, when you've been making your, you know, the 3100 documentary and, and then moving on to, you know, your more recent films, like, are you constantly learning more about yourself that the more you dig into, into these worlds, the more you kind of learn from these different groups that you sort of document and stuff? Like, are you, are you constantly, yeah, sort of learning more about yourself as an individual as well as a runner? I love that question. My my first film was was about farm workers in the U.S. called Food Chains, 
and then American actress Eva Longoria produced it. It came out in 2014. It was on Netflix. I believe it's on YouTube. My most recent movie was Gather, which mm. is on Netflix in the U.S. I think internationally it might be on, oh, I'm not even sure. It might be on, on Vimeo On Demand or it could be on Google Play. It's, it's definitely on iTunes. Um, and, and Amazon it's on, as well. It's on Amazon Prime in the U.K. for U.K. listeners. Fabulous. Thank you. I, I, I've always realized that I make the most progress in my own state of happiness by putting myself into, at least for me, relatively uncomfortable situations. I'm an, I'm an introvert by nature, and it's not to say that I just drop myself into clubs or parties to expand my, my, my feeling of security. Um, but most of my movies require me to like leave my very comfortable middle-class lifestyle in New York City to spend time with people who live at a quite different level of outer comfort than I do. Sometimes chosen, sometimes not chosen. The farm workers that I spent time with in Southern Florida very much did not choose their level of, of economic status. Um, the running communities I spent time with in 3100, the, the monks in Japan, the, the Navajo runner, Sean Martin, the Kalahari Bushman, deliberately sought experiences of pretty extreme physical discomfort as a way to transcend their own mental barriers. And in my last movie, Gather, I spent a lot of time with Native American food producers, harvesters, hunters, to really understand and try to show people the, the relationship that pre-industrial civilizations, or pre-industrial revolution, we all really had with nature. And how much of that was the body experiencing what we would now really feel as discomfort you know, spending hours out in the woods in the cold hunting, you know, and, you know, foraging for, for wild tubers and, and mushrooms and other herbs and roots. But the satisfaction that came with that connection of our body to the earth. Mm. So I, I would say the things that interest me are really understanding how connected we can be with the environments that we're in, not just knowledge-wise, like knowing where your food comes from, not just that kind of superficial knowledge, which obviously has some role and some importance, but really feeling with our hands, feeling with our feet, feeling with our breath, where we are right here and now, feeling that connection. And like Sean Martin said in 3100, when you feel that connection to the earth and the sky, you're you won't just become a champion, you'll become a warrior. I mean, you'll be able to attack and, and, and survive anything that, that life throws at you. You'll be able to thrive in, in, in environments of, of extreme discomfort or distress and, and find a way to get joy out of that realm of exertion. So I, I, I try to explore that, you know, in my own kind of, I guess, professional pursuits. And I, I feel like it, it does translate back into being able to do the workouts in New York City when it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> and uh, not just going like, oh, I'm going to suffer. It's like, oh my God, this is so new. Like how many times a year do I get to run in extreme cold? Mm. You know, or when it's pounding rain, it's like, if it's pounding rain and it's freezing on race day, well, I'm going to have to still 
go out there and try to find some way to enjoy the experience. Mm, so true. I love your love your reflections on that. And I, I'm curious, just picking up on something you said in that that response in relation to your kind of your kind of craft as a filmmaker. How does a self-confessed introvert become a documentary filmmaker? I mean, how how did that journey begin for you to to pick up a camera or go with a film crew and sort of you know nestle into these these communities and these communities that I imagine to sort of broker a, a relationship with you know particularly in your in 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 gather I imagine brokering that relationship and building a a bridge of trust with these communities in order to you know, truthfully and effectively tell their story for someone who, you know, was a self-confessed introvert. How, how do you get to that place? How, how did you cultivate that kind of career? And and have you seen a change in yourself as you've started telling stories through the medium of documentary? Danny, I, I, I mean, I, I love how this, this conversation is really like an opportunity of like therapy. <laughs> Thank you. So- <laughs> I mean, my, my, my first movie, I, I was, I've worked in human rights for a number of years mm. and you know, that requires you to just kind of listen. So I, 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 and introverts, at least my kind of introvert, when, when, you know, we're with people, like I don't like talking and, you know, you kind of just the default position when you don't like talking is to listen. Um, my first film called Ocean Monk, which is on Vimeo was like a 20 minute film about like surfing in the winter in New York city. Um, mm. uh, an extremely enjoyable activity for an introvert. Um, my second movie, again, a short film about 25 minutes called Challenging Impossibility, also on Vimeo. It, it played at kind of every big film festival out there. Looked at Sri Chinmoy's really unusual pursuit of lifting extraordinarily heavy weights mm. towards the end of his life. And you really have to see it to believe it. Challenging Impossibility. But the films that I've made since required me to really exhibit my, I guess, ability, which has gotten better and better to just listen. I mean, the documentary films I make are not necessarily like Michael Moore's where I'm in front of the camera, you know, talking as, you know, I'm not a character in my own movies. So you kind of learn that disappearing into a scenario is a skill, mm. like being a fly on the wall and making people that you're filming completely comfortable and oblivious to the gear and the cameras and the crew presence around is really a skill too. Like most people I work with are all introverts as well, mm. because you have to learn to be invisible, even if there's 10 of you filming one or two people. But it's kind of been a natural extension of both my, my, my personality, my, my curiosity in trying to put myself into positions where I can absorb information that's not necessarily something you can learn from a book, um, to experience different things, experience different cultures in a way where I don't really feel necessarily like I'm, I'm just a tourist, even though there's, a, I think, a big value in just traveling and being a tourist. I mean, I can essentially like live within these characters' lives for a period of months or years. And then ultimately, you know, from the spiritual standpoint, try to be of service to their mm-hmm. own missions by telling their stories as authentically and as honestly as I can. And so far, no one who's been in any of my films has ever felt otherwise. For the most part, you know, I've 
gotten the feedback from the folks in my films who are, who are, who are now very good friends of mine that the films really did their, their stories and their, you know, their knowledge and their experience justice. Mm, uh, and I, I would absolutely sort of hammer home and underline that point, particularly with, with Gather. My, my wife and I watched it um, last night oh, and it you. kind of blew my mind to uh, a, a whole world, a community that, I, you know, I knew very little about on a very surface level, but particularly that sort of thread of, of, of them kind of reconnecting to their to their sort of spiritual and cultural identities. It was just really kind of eye-opening and, and mind-blowing, but done in such a kind of tasteful and tactful and sensitive way that clearly sort of um aligns with the kind of process that you've just been um you've just been describing in terms of sort of disappearing and and, and listening and you're right i think you know as a, a a cinephile i suppose i would call myself as you know as someone who appreciates documentaries and, and films and stuff is when you can really tell great documentary work when it's someone who's truly sort of listened and absorbed their subject and is just sort of faithfully retelling their story. And you, you absolutely kind of demonstrate that, um, particularly in your, in your most recent movie, but looking ahead, I mean, are there, are there other projects in development that you're working on at the moment? Are there, are there films that perhaps are going to bring you back to running or are you more interested in just exploring different ideas and different communities that are away from the sport? I mean, it, it seems like in my own career trajectory, I do a film on sports, let's say challenging impossibility, then food, mm. food chain, then sports, 3100, then food, gather. Mm. And this coincidentally, the movie that I'm, I'm working on right now, which has been a, a project for the last four or five years, is about my running coach, a woman named Patty Dillon, who ran under the last name Patty Catalano in the late 70s and early 80s. She was Nike's first female sponsored elite runner mm. and was the first American woman to break two hours and 30 minutes in the marathon in the 1980 New York City Marathon. Um, she was, is a, a, a Native American um, woman from the Mi'kmaq tribe of Nova Scotia, raised in Boston. And it's not a documentary. It's a narrative film because, mm. you know, back in the 70s and 80s, God, imagine, I mean, knowing all the equal pay nonsense that women have to fight through women athletes have had to fight through in the last decade imagine being a paid woman athlete in the late 70s early 80s and kind of on that spectrum because they were women there's so little actual footage that was shot of them mm. so the idea of doing a documentary about patty was one of my first ideas but it became clear that her story is exemplary in the sense that, you know, all of the emotions you can imagine in someone's life in those days and, and times, you know, existed, all of the, the highs and the lows of the wins and the losses. Number two, there's really no footage of it. Number three, you know, if we made it into a narrative of, uh, 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 based on a true story fictional movie, it would feel much more present and much more vibrant. So that film on Patty is in production now or in development now. We're hoping to, to shoot it in late 2023, maybe early 2024. And at the same time, and I count this as one of the, the deepest privileges of my life, I've, I've been on the board of a Native American running organization called Wings of America. Mm. Ron Martin in 3100 is on the board as well. And you know, after I made 3100, I was invited to join that board. And just a few weeks ago, I, I was named the, the chairman of the board of this this nonprofit in the US dedicated to revitalizing the physical, cultural, and spiritual strength of indigenous runners. So 
those two things have kind of become my my uh, my fo- my kind of spiritual and physical focuses for this next coming year. Wow, that sounds fantastic, and I'm very excited about another great running movie being kind of added to the canon when when your film goes into production and and, and is released. It sounds like an an incredible incredible story, and I, I yeah, I'm sure people listening will be looking forward to to seeing that when when, when it's released, but. Just sort of looking back kind of over your own running story with you as the main character, we'll, we'll, we'll focus back in on, on you rather than the subjects that you've been sort of working on or building stories around. I mean, at the end of uh, my conversations on this podcast, I tend to ask uh, expansive questions to the guests and I'm always kind of interested to see where they kind of draw their responses from. But looking back at your own kind of career as a runner, if you wanted to call it a career, have there been moments where perhaps things haven't gone your way or you've seen things that perhaps you would interpret as failure that in hindsight have taught you a invaluable lesson that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, it's a it's a great question. I mean, there are are so many experiences of failures, but I, I've I've realized that you know the only real failure is identifying with failure. We've all been told a million times that nothing's really a failure. Everything is a learning opportunity. And in the kind of like heat of the moment, you know, in, in the, the heart of the battle, it's very difficult to force yourself to have that sort of perspective. But it's essential, you know, to, to understand that at some point, either in a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, you'll see a lesson in that experience that you could not have learned if it was a a so-called success. Mm. So number one, I've realized that to kind of combat the terrible feeling of the experience of failure, it's important for me to focus on the fact that running and performance is about consistency. I mean, there's always going to be what statisticians refer to as mean reversion. Like for every really, really, really outlier good performance, there's probably going to be an outlier bad performance. (laughs) That's just the way everything works from financial markets to, you know, to, you know, Stephen, Steph Curry, you know, shooting three pointers. Like people have illustrated there's no such thing as a hot hand. It's like if you have a hot hand one game, you'll probably have a really cold hand the next game. But the great thing about running being based on mitochondria much more so than than skill is that you can keep increasing that baseline so that the lows get higher and the highs get higher. And so for me, it's understanding that like my failure today I would have seen as a huge success, you know, Mm. at an earlier stage in my running journey. And by understanding the continuum aspect, you know, it's helped me to realize that what I might want to frame as a failure right now really isn't. And again, in like 30, 40, 50 years, when I'm kind of sitting on a couch watching TV and I look back to, a failure of a race in my 40s, I'll probably go like I would do anything 
to be able to run that time or run those amount of miles again. I love that. I know this is audio only, but you can't see I'm, I'm grinning from ear to ear with just the, the, the sort of general loveliness of that sentiment that you've just shared. Thank you. That's a, it's a brilliant reflection to take from that idea of a failure. And you're so right that you will be cherry picking those bad performances years from now and uh, languishing after them as, as time sort of marches on. That's a, a lovely, lovely response. Um, so my second expansive question, and I imagine, I don't know, I imagine within your kind of work as a documentary filmmaker, perhaps th these are things that you may have encountered as well as within your kind of running um, experience. But are there any are there any myths out there, maybe connected to running, or, or maybe you wanted to take it broader and more general, but are there any myths out there that you'd like to take this opportunity to debunk? Unfortunately, I'm not really smart enough. <laughs> I would disagree. You've been very, very smart, intelligent, and articulate in this conversation, but okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is like, I'm in my late 40s, 48, I think now. Mm -hmm. And I was told about 10 years ago, and I didn't really start listening to that advice till like last year, about how much changes within a male body, and I would imagine a female body, with the decrease or the imbalance of hormones that comes with age. Mm. Everything from weight to anxiety to performance. And it's, and, and it's been a, a, a really interesting, you know, path, not just to dive into the nitty gritty of the spiritual aspects of running, but to really try to understand health on a cellular and hormonal level, mm. people are, are very different from one another. And again, it's very difficult to just take blanket advice from one person or another. But as I've been interested in the spiritual aspects of, of running for the last 10 years or so, I've really kind of begun to find some joy in trying to understand the kind of minutiae of Cellular, cellular level processes, particularly as you get older. And it just gives me another set of, another kind of like realm to try to refine that will all lead to happier runs, maybe better performance on an age or a year by year basis. And uh, give me a better kind of ex expansive breadth of, of this whole running experience that we're in. To have a more expansive breath of this whole running experience that we're in. I, I feel like that's a, a lovely sort of sentiment to just leave the listeners with and a lovely note to end this this fantastic uh, eye-opening conversation. Sanjay, thank you so much for for being a guest on the big run from for sharing your your experiences and for being so brilliant with your answers. I, I encourage everyone to to check out uh, Sanjay's uh, documentaries. I'll be linking them in today's show notes uh, with all the relevant links and where you can find all of the, the relevant films if you want to check out some of the things we've been talking about today. But yes, Sanjay, thank you so much for coming on and being such a brilliant guest on The Big Room. You're the absolute best, Danny. Thank you so much for indulging me and for uh, letting me get to know you a little better. A big thank you to Sanjay for taking the time to come on the show. You can follow him and check out the links to his movies mentioned via today's show notes. 
Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. If you are enjoying The Big Run, please tell your friends, leave us a review, share it on your social media platforms, spread the word so we can continue to offer you these fantastic conversations. I'm so grateful for everyone who tunes in every week. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on The Big Run.